Coming up this hour, we're going to talk face masks and cancel culture. And then Jim Galvin, author of a new big book, Maximizing Board Effectiveness, will be joining us. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Happy to have you join us today. Uh, as a reminder, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Ian, I would uh, point out you and I were just discussing. Anytime the name Donald Trump goes up on our Facebook page, uh, the the commenters come out. And yesterday, that was uh, that was certainly the case. I would say. <laughs> I think it needs to be more than just the name. I'm Usually not sure. An, ar- an article of some kind. Yeah. We should just try putting the name up and see what happens. Yeah, sure. Knock uh, yourself but, out. But yesterday's article uh, had a lot of traction. So you can find that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, uh, at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com. And as always, get our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Ian Simpkins, how are you doing today? I am fine. <laughs> said with conviction uh mm-hmm. in your ba- I feel very convicted about it yeah in your basement or in your treehouse today oh neither neither my friend oh do tell well no i don't think i will and just gonna have to guess back deck N- nope okay well you're just gonna leave us all hanging how about before the show is over you tell us but it could be any time before the show is over you could ask alexa and maybe you'll know within the next nine months <laughs> good point all that matters is that i did complete that task with alexa so is that uh, all that matters though yep, brian yep yep it is yep it is i don't i don't think our audience agrees we do not know where ian is right now but i'm sitting in the same spot i've been sitting for the last three months doing this show up in my bedroom so mm-hmm. uh we are still separate, but in thanks to technology, able to do the show together. So, Ian, I'm coming in a little hot today. Uh, oh, okay, sorry I, to hear that. I cannot figure out. So, laying my cards on the table, we're gonna, just going to jump right into it today. Okay. Uh, I cannot figure out uh, that how face masks became so political, and the wearing of face masks became so political. So, you can't no, and I know you're going to tell me I'm just naive. But uh, <laughs> never, I've never said that to you, by the way. But I feel naive. But, you know, the Washington Post today, they had an article how the split over face masks sums up America's chaotic coronavirus response. I have yep. another article up here we'll look at from the BBC kind of taking away the myth of uh, of of the negative effects of a face mask. I'm looking on CNN literally right now. And Dr. Fauci's quoted as saying, forget the politics. Look at the data when it comes to face masks. Uh, many of the states that are having a surge from Texas to North and South Carolina and some others today began instituting face mask guidelines again. For me, this feels like and, and you tell me where what you think or where I'm wrong. But for me, face masks in this whole pandemic seem like the most low hanging fruit that seems like most uh, people who know what they're talking about. Uh, agree will make a difference. It won't like eliminate the coronavirus, but it will make a difference. But somehow it's become like a political thing or like if I'm actually tough, I don't wear a face mask and I don't understand it. I don't know if you saw the uh, guy in Phoenix yesterday, uh, the councilman who got up and just like had on a face mask and he said, uh, began mocking all that's going on in our country by saying behind his face mask, I can't breathe. And then he took it off and slammed it to the ground 
uh, like it was yeah, like something. I did not see that. Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. Like I just mm. all that to say, I don't get uh, the like uh, how people who wear face masks are kind of looked down upon and how it's been so politicized, even though everything's politicized. Help me understand. Tell show me where I'm naive, because, uh, man, every day that goes by when I read stuff, it makes me, quite frankly, angry when people won't wear them. Uh, well, that's exactly my point. People, depending on your side, will look down on the people that are doing the opposite, right? So it's not just people are being looked down on for wearing masks. People are also being looked down on for not wearing masks, which is the nature of the polarization, right? I mean, it's not hard to trace which political camp is more in favor and which is more opposed. So, you know, some of that is tribalism at its finest. And if yeah. you are died in the wool this or that and the people that are kind of leading the charge or the loudest most pronounced mouthpiece of said camp then doesn't it kind of make sense that you would have ill feeling towards the the other side that disagrees with your conviction yeah it makes sense although uh and i get it there's a lot of people out there who just don't believe that face masks make a difference and that's probably where this is coming but it's really striking to me that a bunch of the states who opened up first and are now having, excuse me, some issues right now. They're having some surge, whatever, uh, however serious you think that is or not. Uh, but, that not, but, not all of them, but not all of them are having surges, though. That's, well, I, agree. That's a, I, I get that. Point. My point is the ones that are having surges are immediately one of their first steps is to begin uh, enacting face mask laws today and yesterday. And you want to be like. I don't know. Maybe that would have been a good idea this whole time, even as you're opening up and then. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm just I'm just riled up, too, because I think some people in my own life who are posting dumb things about face masks and a little bit of um, it, there's there's like this attitude behind it. Like if I'm uh, like you said, if I'm a Republican, if I'm conservative, I don't wear face masks because I don't trust the science. And I just want to be like, you know what, uh, even if it's a, just a good chance that face masks are going to help us in this fight. Why wouldn't we do it? I, I don't know, man. I think I, I think I just look at this more practically right now than most people probably are. No, that's that is a straw man. I, I think to say that the people that disagree with you are either trying to be tough or they're being selfish. There's a legitimate camp that believes that wearing or overwearing is actually harmful for them. Okay. In what way? Maybe I'm just not familiar with the camp. I know I read the article a little bit on BBC. Maybe I'm not familiar with the camp because most people I come that's in contact my point. with. But that's my point, though. You should familiarize yourself with the camp because it isn't as like, hey, the facts say this and this other side are just being irresponsible by not listening to the facts. That's how we get into these divides in the first place because we don't understand how the other camp actually got to their conclusion. So it's easy in this environment to say, well, the science is decisive and clear and anyone who doesn't do what I do is either foolish or irresponsible or putting other people in harm. They think the same thing about you though, based on the science and the data and the articles that they're reading. That's, that's kind of my point. I get that. But aren't there other things where it's just kind of agreed upon? Maybe I'm, I, maybe you're making a good point. Maybe I just need to read more because uh, what have you heard? Okay. Let me, let me back it up this way. Then what have you heard, whether you agree with it or not, that is, that is a, uh, for for some people, a compelling reason why not to wear face masks. What's one or two things you've heard? Well, I mean, like, for example, when we breathe in, when we breathe air into our lungs, it's mostly nitrogen and oxygen. When we exhale, we breathe out mostly carbon dioxide. And with a mask there, 
blocks a lot of that. And so people are wearing masks like while they're running, for example, you're mm. likely breathing a good deal of carbon dioxide, which is actually really not healthy. It's not. In fact, our uh, our friend Trav, who has been wonderful at sending us articles and making suggestions, he commented on the article that you suggested earlier from the BBC. Says, if you want to believe it isn't harmful, so you sleep better for putting them on your kids, go ahead. This and nothing else would convince me otherwise. Listen to your body. It's not good for you to cover your face for a work day. Plus, it can only help the clan that it doesn't help prevent the spread because if your breath is easily released through the mask, so is COVID-19. Hmm. So we say on one hand, you run the risk of breathing in carbon dioxide, especially if you're wearing it for all, you know, the whole day. On the other hand, if if it allows for your breath to escape throughout the mask, there's a good chance that whatever whatever toxins are there are probably also escaping. And so that his case maybe, and I don't wanna I don't wanna presume simply yep. based on a Facebook yep. post, is that it might actually be more harmful to you, in his opinion. Huh. See, this is why I like doing the show with you. You talk me off my ledges every now and then. Okay. <laughs> I'm not trying to talk you off your ledges. I just think if we're going to draw a line or point fingers on another camp, we should be educated about that camp too. All right. All right. I'm going to do that. See, this is why this is good. This might have been a not helpful for anybody else, but it's helpful for me. That's good. Because as we said, and I know we got to wrap this segment up, but as we said uh, yesterday, I'm probably on the pretty loose end right now of jumping in the phase four and other things. But this face mask one has been a big deal for me. But I'm going to go and read some more tonight. That's what I'm going to do, as opposed to just uh, making assumptions. Thank you for that, Ian. <laughs> My pleasure, Brian. It's been a delight. You can find that article and some of those comments at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, author Jim Galvin is going to join us. He's the author of a new book called Maximizing Board Effectiveness, A Practical Guide for Effective Governance. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, one of the things that we say often on the show is that we really enjoy the opportunity we get uh, to meet and to talk to interesting people and to guests. And uh, with that in mind, we are joined right now by Jim Galvin, author of a new book coming out called Maximizing Board Effectiveness, A Practical Guide for Effective Governance. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet, Brian. Absolutely. So I'm wondering uh, if you could just introduce yourself to our audience any way that you see fit. Yeah, I do uh, consulting for uh, nonprofit organizations and churches and universities, foundations, basically anything uh, not for profit. And uh, more and more, I've been doing work with boards and uh, and governance. And my joke about that is I'm old enough to do that kind of work now. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm getting more of it. So um, this book comes out of, you know, more than a decade's worth of experience in working with nonprofit boards. So Brian and I are both pastors, which you know, and you know a lot of pastors I know, especially once they graduate seminary, realize pretty quickly that they were taught some Hebrew and Greek and some historical analysis, but not necessarily how to run board meetings or leadership teams or build a strategy. What, what are some of the things from your book that might be helpful for people in the church world to know? Well, uh, you have to understand that uh, governance is a very a complex area. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't need to be, you can make it simple, but uh, by our own efforts, you know, we add committees, we add boards, uh, mm -hmm. like for example, for a small congregation, might have a finance committee, an elder board, a deacon's board, a junior high ministry committee. I mean, and they put these all on sort of equal level of authority. 
And so what it does is creates very complex, messy kinds of situations, which doesn't always have to be. So a quick story. One normal-sized church uh, had to replace their van because the expenses to repair it weren't worth what the van uh, was worth. So one of the members went out and found uh, a white passenger van coming off a lease, really good price. So he went in and brought it to the, to the church board. And the treasurer opposed it because the van had power windows. <laughs> so they were trying to explain the power windows don't cost anything right. on a used car. We might not even be able to find one right. with regular windows. You know, what's, what are you worried about? He said, well, we have to demonstrate that we're being good stewards of the resources mm. that we have here. Mm. That's really interesting. Jim, I'm curious. Uh, it's funny. Our elder board was just having this conversation the other day, but how would you, as someone who has studied this and thought a lot about this, how would you just summarize uh, how you think a good functioning elder board should work? What should their role be within a church? Well, that's not an easy question to answer because depending <laughs> on your denominational background or your polity, uh, you could have an elder-led church where the elders are serving as the board as well as elders. Right. You can have a separate group called elders and you have a, a board of directors, which mm. governs and oversees the finances and ministries uh, of the church. So uh, right off the bat, it's complex. But I think yeah. for most, most, well, all nonprofits and most churches, as close as you can get to a single board of directors that's overseeing all the aspects of the church, streamlines the governance and reduces potential for conflict. Hmm. So one of the things that I'm interested in is your wide experience in various contexts. I'm wondering, based now on the experience and the boards that you've sat in and the reading and writing that you've done, what are some of the main pitfalls or hurdles or problems that, that a lot of boards tend to kind of fall into? Hmm. Well, the biggest one is micromanaging. Hmm. Um, a person gets nominated to be on a board or an elder board, and they want to do a good job, and no one's really clarified what their job is. Right. And so they come into, especially, you know, medium-sized or larger congregations, it's a very complex operation. They don't understand everything for how it works. So they're going to start by asking a lot of questions. And they're going to look at the budget, and they don't know where all this money's going, so they're going to ask questions about line item budget. And then um, if the office needs to buy a new photocopier, they're going to want to weigh in on that and offer their expertise for what right. kind of photocopier to buy. Right. And they're just trying to do a good job, but because their role hasn't been clarified, they don't understand what overseeing means, hmm. not managing. Hmm. And hmm. Uh, people who are good at managing want to take that gift and bring it into the church and start managing the staff. Right. If you have no staff, that's fine. If you have a 15, 20 paid staff at your congregation, that is a problem because mm -hmm. you've hired people to manage the work and now you need to step back and oversee it. But it's right. just ministry is too interesting. And it's just too much fun to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> How about the other end of the spectrum? You know, I can think of, you know, some churches uh, where maybe there's an attitude that says, just let the pastor do everything. Let him or her make the decisions. And uh, we'll just kind of sign off on that where there's really a lack of oversight. Maybe what's the danger in your mind of a pastor having too much of the authority? Yeah. Um, I call that micro governance. So there's two sides of that question, but uh, the one side of it is the problem with the board 
is that they're not fully engaged. Mm. Uh, to hold a board meeting costs money and it costs staff time. And so they're not free. And if you have a board meeting, you don't make any decisions. You don't make any contributions. You don't help the church work better or your nonprofit work better. Then that's a net negative. You might as well not meet. It's bad stewardship to meet because you're wasting resources. Hmm. So board members need to be engaged and the board needs to identify what its job is and then uh, uh, do its job. Hmm. So if people start or if people don't engage, if they sit back, they don't prepare. And if they don't, if they stop coming to the board meetings, then you have a huge problem. You have a board that is disengaged or failing. Right. Right. So obviously we want people to go and get your book, but I'm wondering in the couple of minutes that we have left, let's say someone's listening right now, they either lead the board or maybe it's just someone that's on the board and they're hearing you speak and they're thinking, Oh my goodness, we, we might be more dysfunctional than I realize. Or there's some, there's some, there's some tweaks that we need to make. What, what maybe first or second steps would you encourage people to take right now other than buying your book? Well, one is make sure you have a written job description for mm-hmm. uh, a board member. Yeah. Often you'll see in bylaws a job description for president, vice president, treasurer, secretary. But for a regular at-large board member, what's your job? What are you supposed to do? Um, so writing job description, first of all, uh, is a good step. And a lot, a lot of boards don't write those because they don't know what the role of a board member is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to make sure the chair of the board and the pastor or organizational leader uh, have touch base before every board meeting, have worked together to create the agenda. Mm-hmm. And they're coming as a unified uh uh, group two, two people unified together rather than the organizational leader coming and on a board surprising him or her with uh, issues or concerns uh, or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So the more they can plan ahead and work together ahead, the smoother the board meetings are going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a pastor, I know that this is something that's really difficult to dance. That's difficult to get. So I'd, if that's where you're at, if you're a pastor, a leader of a church, or just want to pass it on, uh, you can pick up maximizing board effectiveness, a practical guide for effective governance. Uh, we've been talking to the author, Jim Galvin about that. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. Jim. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you join us today. Uh, Again, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. You can find us online, 1160hope.com, and the podcast. Wherever it is you get podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Ian, we've been talking about how we've been doing this show from our houses for the last couple months. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was telling you off air that literally the, my neighbors have been running stuff through a uh, a wood chipper literally once we start the show every day for the last three days. And I'm amazed that you can't hear it. <laughs> well, what, if, what if they listen to the show and now you've hurt their feelings? Or they're doing it because they're like, we got to make sure they can't hear him. <laughs> That's right, right. We listened to one episode and we need to distract him as much as possible. I was telling Ian the last segment or the first segment of today, right when we started, they started right at the same time. So something about Murphy's law or something there. So (laughs) 
uh, at Religion News, Jonathan Merritt, uh, who is a great uh, author and also somebody who uh, is very good at stirring the pot. That He writes articles and people talk about it. Uh, and so Jonathan Merritt wrote an article entitled Evangelicals Perfected Cancel Culture. Now it's coming for them. What's going on with this article? So we've talked about cancel culture a number of times over the last year and a half. We actually even talked about this story in particular. But as you mentioned, Merritt offers some unique perspectives. So here's how he begins. He says, liking a tweet is technically free, but one Alabama megachurch is paying a hefty price. This month, Chris Hodges, senior pastor of Church of the Highlands, an evangelical congregation with 60,000 members spread across 24 locations. I don't know why I said it like I was announcing a baseball game. That's just That's a uh, lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Came under fire after screenshots were shared online showing the pastor liking several posts by Charlie Kirk, a controversial po- pro-Trump activist. The posts in question were considered racially insensitive and, among other things, questioned whether white privilege actually exists. These actions sparked outcry from Birmingham residents, including the pastor of at least one black church who was already displeased that Hodges' church has been planting white congregations in black neighborhoods to which they had no connection. Hodges attempted to quell the furor by deleting his social media account and tearfully mm-hmm. apologizing to his congregation, but Birmingham's Board of Education, which leased at uh, least two public high schools to the church, was unconvinced. Maybe you remember us doing the story a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The board abruptly canceled Church of the Highlands' six-year lease, prohibiting the church from continuing to meet in the schools, the city's housing authority also terminated a partnership under which the church provided various social services to residents. Hodges had been canceled, a term for what happens when people, most often on social media, but increasingly in real life, band together and employ shaming tactics to block a person from having a platform. It can mean boycotting the target's businesses, the refusing to consume their books or films or pressuring friends, colleagues and activists to denounce them or formally cut ties. Ironically, Evangelical Christians who now decry what happened to Hodges are well practiced at this treatment. While cancel culture may be a recent phenomenon, public scapegoating, shaming, and silencing tactics are not. So, my guess is he's going to go in on evangelicals' use of those things that I just mentioned going forward and some of the the dichotomy now with how it seems some of the tables have turned. Yeah, absolutely. And his his point being that uh, while it's a cultural phenomenon now, uh, that we do it quickly within our churches. So he's going to uh, bring it from all the way back in the 60s through the 70s. And Jerry Falwell, he, he brings up one that I had forgotten when Jerry Falwell Sr., founder of Moral Majority, famously led an effort to boycott the Teletubbies. Uh, oh, right. Which, uh, do your kids ever watch the Teletubbies? No, and they never shall. It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. Is there a, a lesson? Is there like a moral point to Teletubbies? I don't remember. Not really, and it's awkward. <laughs> the scariest thing about Teletubbies, this is totally uh, being off the point, is they have this, there's like a sun, like S-U-N, not a sun, like a, like literally the sun in the sky, sure. and it just has this baby's face in it, giggling and staring at you, and you're like, nah, that is weird. <laughs> I don't like that. That's a thing of nightmares. No, thank you. But then he talks about how, you know, in the Christian world, people started doing it to each other, so you might remember famously uh, John Piper's tweet when Rob Bell came out with Love Wins that just said, farewell, Rob Bell. Uh, and then he talks that. about Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Held Evans, and various reasons uh, that others have been, uh, quote, unquote, canceled. Um, and so I guess the question that I would like to wrestle with here, Ian, is, uh, is there, 
how should cancel culture be handled within the church? Because there might be times we think that person needs to be quote unquote canceled or there are never times where that's the case. Gosh, um, I don't uh, I'm going to step in it here. <laughs> Take it I, any way you want. <laughs> I don't think there's anything Christian about cancel culture. Just in, mm-hmm. just in general, I, I think at its core, and I think this is pretty ecumenical. I think we can, we can agree to this. At its core, it's about reconciliation, restoration. Now, mm-hmm. that's not at all to say that people don't wildly discredit themselves or disqualify themselves from leadership. It does not mean that everyone gets to maintain platforms and influence and even really the same degree of connection forever and ever and ever. Amen. I, I think that there yeah. most certainly still needs to be consequences and accountability, way, way more accountability in a lot of circles than maybe we've seen in the past. But canceling at its core is saying that person's done for it's honest. It's honestly, this is going to be a real jump. Probably shouldn't even say it. It's a lot of why I really, really um, don't support the death penalty. Say that mm-hmm. the person's done forever because of the horrific thing they've done. And obviously I realize there are two very, very different spheres, two different conversations, but to cancel is sort of say you're done forever and ever. We don't ever want to hear from you ever again. Now, yep. again, and I've experienced, I mean, even in my, you know, early years of ministry, I had leaders that were removed for very valid reasons yep. because they disqualify themselves. It's not ungracious to not let them be senior pastor anymore. I don't right. think, in fact, I think it's more gracious to the church and to the victims and the people they've manipulated. But uh, yeah, but canceling, overall to me just feels antithetical to the narrative of reconciliation restoration that we so often talk about. Uh, I, I don't think you stepped in it. I think I totally agree with you. And the death penalty example is not bad because uh, that's us saying that that person's not redeemable. And, um, you know, I think back to famously what, like, as I mentioned before, when John Piper tweeted farewell, Rob Bell around, uh, love wins. I like. I don't think it would have been bad if John Piper thought that that was a dangerous book that was heretical for John Piper to talk about why the book and the ideas are dangerous. But instead, yeah. uh, the but not take it to the point of going. This person is gone, <laughs> right? Like he's right. Uh, he, he's no longer valid. And like they said, that happens on uh, in progressive Christianity. It happens in conservative Christianity. And I for think sure. what worries me right now. Uh, is and we talked a little bit about this yesterday. Is I don't feel like the church in general, Big C Church, is getting better at this. I feel like we're getting worse at this, uh, just as we are as a culture. I feel like people are getting canceled um, based on even you know who they vote for or what they say about this or that. And I, I think you brought up a great uh, a a valid uh, differentiation, right? You can uh, we can disagree and even take somebody out of leadership because of what they say. But it doesn't mean that they're dead to us. And for me, cancel culture, it's like, nope, that person's dead. You can never listen to them again. And I think using the word redeemable, I think, is really valid there. And again, just to be really clear, like in the case of really egregious examples in the last year or so, Harvey Mm -hmm. Weinstein is done making loads of money over his exploitation and abuse. Absolutely. Done. Bill Cosby, as best I can tell, Deserves to be in prison. That pains me to say because I, you know what I mean. Like there's, yeah. there's, there's tension there for sure. But the yeah, the canceling. I think you're right. That is that is one really interesting point that left and right, progressive and traditional. We we both can really fall into this. And I think um, 
I, yeah, I think it can be really dangerous. Now, that's not at all to say. I just feel like I want to keep reiterating, like, this guy liking some of these tweets, while it may seem benign to him, super dangerous. Mm-hmm. Really not okay. Yes. Yeah, I, absolutely. None of this says, oh, nobody should ever be held to what they did. Or, uh, But this whole idea of canceling. Well, we're curious what you think about it. Uh, what about cancel culture and the church? You can find it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next... Uh, Becky Pippard at the Gospel Coalition, Coalition talking evangelism. We're going to do that next here at The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Ask Alexa, and she will point you right to our podcast. Uh, just ask, uh, what, what, should I, what should we ask Alexa? Play the Common Good radio show, I believe. That'll get you there. Or subscribe and- to the Common Good radio show podcast. Alexa, help me to leave a glowing review. Alexa, there you go. send the podcast to my 10 closest friends so that they also <laughs> can enjoy the podcast as I have. Things like that. All of those are great. And speaking mm-hmm. of reviews at our podcast, I went and checked today. I think we've really been pumping people to uh, to go review it, and and nobody has this week. So See, that I hurts knew, my heart. I knew, it hurts my feelings. I knew you were going to try to guilt somebody before the week was over, Brian. That is I'm, not, gonna go, I'm going hard at the guilt no, trip right that now. Is no, <laughs> that is no way to garner a response. So what I'd like you to do in the review, just write sorry, and then go ahead with a five-star review. <laughs> That's good. Just yeah, just post a picture of Eeyore. No, <laughs> just, I don't think you can I apologize. <laughs> yeah, right. My bad. Uh, so we're going to talk about evangelism at the at the uh, Gospel Coalition. Becky Pippert, who uh, wrote a well-known book years ago called "Out of the Salt Shaker," uh, she wrote an article at the Gospel Coalition called "Keep Witnessing: God Still Pursuing." I want to talk a little bit about evangelism, but before we do that, Ian is going to uh, talk about our good friends at Thrivent. I'd love to. So Thrivent.com, if you're taking notes, head on over there. They also have a number of Facebook pages. There's one specifically here for Chicagoland. There are Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for a long, long time, more than Brian and I's ages combined, but I've been a member for like eight years. Wonderful organization. Check out Action Teams, by the way. I think you'll be really amazed at the ways that they're kind of like giving back. My whole introduction to them, by the way, they came alongside our church when we were really in need just of some resources and they like trained us and equipped us totally free of charge. It was awesome. It was really amazing. They, they actually helped us put on a wedding conference, a wedding conference, a marriage conference, <laughs> not a wedding conference. But another thing though, if you're looking for a career change, thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to sort of peruse a little bit. And uh, we're also posting a bunch of the stuff on our Facebook page because we're hosting wonderful webinars and giving a whole lot of free resources in this time of quarantine and pandemic and all that. So super, super grateful for them. As we said, Becky Pippert wrote at the Gospel Coalition. Let me read the beginning about evangelism. She writes, our culture is said to be post-Christian, not merely not Christian, but increasingly set against Christianity. More and more, we're in danger of losing confidence that talking about Jesus will have any impact. Hmm. Yet our secular society leaves people searching for something that gives meaning and purpose to their lives. I'll keep going, but let me pause there. Do you uh do you agree with her assessment of our culture right there, right from the beginning? Nah, not necessarily. Tell me how or why. I didn't think you would. Uh, tell me, uh, <laughs> tell me your thoughts on it. Um, well, she sort of she sort of softens it a little bit. She says we're in danger of losing confidence that talking about Jesus will have any impact. 
I don't know. I feel like talking about Jesus is way, way up, actually. I don't know that mm. Christianity or churches or pastors are necessarily quite as popular, but I, man, I, I feel like the, I interact with a number of people who are intrigued at the very least by the, the historical person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So she goes on to say, yes, these can be difficult times to, quote, stay salt, which I believe is uh, the name of her new book, yeah. uh, and to keep sharing the reason for our hope. But these are also the best times to be a witness because the need is so great. Will we, in our post-Christian culture, reclaim our confidence and conviction in the God who speaks and acts and who is, as C.S. Lewis said, the transcendental interferer? Will we show the world, not in a triumphal triumphalist or pushy manner, but by word and deed, that receiving Christ as Lord makes all the difference, the only true and lasting difference in our individual lives, our cities, and our world. So that's the beginning of this kind of setting up. Are we going to be people who talk about Jesus or not? And I'm curious, you and I both grew up. Uh, we've shared this many times, Christian missionary Alliance uh, from an early age in my church. It was kind of uh, in a positive way, pounded into my head. Like you, you talk about your faith. Here's how you do evangelism. Here's the tools. Um, do you feel like evangelism still takes kind of that, um, uh, that importance in the churches of today. What is what is your take on that? I mean, I think it's morphing. Again, churches are so diverse, so it's. Yep. I always really hesitate to to make any kind of sweeping statements like the church is doing this or not doing that, because I imagine there are a lot of people listening like our our church is doing a great job with that. But right. I think uh, I think it has certainly shifted. I think that our digital reality is changing some of that. But I, you know, I've said it at least in conversation. <laughs> I think one of the best evangelistic approaches might just simply be don't be a jerk. I think there's so much <laughs> meanness, particularly from the Christian perspective that I'm like, man, j- let's just start there. Let's not be jerks online to each other mm-hmm. and to people we disagree with. That might be one of the greatest witnesses, at least as a starting point, obviously, you know, also sharing. And she talks about like the hope that we have. Yeah. I think that's really important, but it isn't just simply, People can sniff out when you like are quote talking about the hope that you have, but you live completely hopelessly. Interesting. Uh, people, I think, are really, really like keen to that. So it's not just enough to like keep talking about the hope that you have. Live as a person of hope, like the way you talk about the news and the division that we see in politics and what's happening in our world. Like how we interact with those things is our witness. I think that's just as important mm. as anything else that we do. That's okay. Uh, so somebody comes up to you. They say, Pastor, I've been reading. I, I want to uh, share Jesus with people. I've never really done it. It makes me really nervous to bring up religious things. Could you give me one or two of uh, just tips? All right. I wrote down, don't be a jerk, which I think is really good. <laughs> uh, I want to start my next evangelism sermon that way. Point one, do not be a jerk. Right. End um, of list. Yeah. End of list. Uh, what are just what are some encouragements? It might not be point one. Do this. But what are some encouragements? Because, again, we grew up in kind of a uh, at least I did. And I think you did, too. We grew up with models. Right. Like, yeah, here's the different things you share. Here's the Roman road or the sure. uh, four spiritual laws or whatever else it might be. But what would you tell somebody in your church who's like, I really want to do the work of an evangelist. I want to do this well, uh, but I'm nervous and I don't know what to do. Yeah, I think evangelism, like theology, is both an art and a science. So I don't think models are necessarily entirely bad. I think it's good to have handles or a frame of reference or like 
some basic understanding. I think that stuff can be really helpful, but I think we do kind of trip ourselves up. Like, like even in how you ask the question, this hypothetical mm-hmm. person is saying, I don't really know how to talk about religious things. Like who said you had to talk about religious things? Talk about the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Talk about your life before you came to Jesus, trusted in Jesus and how it's different now. That doesn't necessarily have to be any kind of like religious diatribe. You're just simply saying, Hey, listen, I get it. And in fact, I was really skeptical of the whole thing for a long while and it's been a long road and it wasn't like a switch flipped, but here's not only how like Jesus has made a difference, but also how my church community has made a difference. Here's how the word of God has like slowly over time transformed the way that I see my marriage and my finances and my neighbor. I think that stuff's really honest and it makes it, it makes it feel, I think what's truer to most people's experience. It wasn't like I prayed a prayer and I instantly stopped becoming, you know, a sex addict or I immediately started uh, eating more vegetables or whatever, you know, whatever. Like it's, (laughs) it's, for a lot of us, it is a slow sanctifying formation type of, and I think talking about that honestly is the best place to start. Yeah. That over time line is an important one because uh, when I got really anxious growing up about sharing Jesus, it was because I felt like I had to get them to pray a prayer right now. Right. (laughs) Right. Close the deal yeah, right always now. Always be closing, right? And, but instead, just going, "Hey, we'll continue this conversation. We'll keep talking. I'll be honest with you, and uh, and we'll let God do what God does." Well, let me read how she closes. She says, "No matter how inadequate or hesitant we feel, Jesus calls every Christian to be His mouthpiece, hands and feet in the spreading of the gospel. God gives us His power through the Spirit, His truth through the gospel, and His love through Jesus. Everything we need to be effective witnesses with whatever." Time God has allotted each of us. Let us strive to be witnesses worthy of the one who sacrificed everything for us and for our salvation. Can there be a greater privilege? That's Becky Pippert. Keep witnessing God still pursuing uh, at the Gospel Coalition. We're glad you're joining us today. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about a phrase that President Trump has been using on the campaign trail. Uh, And then what did Jesus actually look like? You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, If you missed anything from the first hour, a couple different places you can get it. You can find it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com. And our podcast, you can find any of our old shows at our podcast, Uh, subscribe, rate and review. Grateful for the many people who do listen to the podcast. We're grateful for you. And uh, if you subscribe, rate and review, it does help us. So thanks in advance for doing that. Uh, Ian, after our talk with uh, what was his name yesterday? Andrew Lee. Was it Andrew Lee? I think I got that right. Uh, Pastor down in the city. Uh, He we were talking about something in particular that then I was just reading a bunch of articles and the things he was saying to us kind of stuck in my head. And it's this, it is uh, the, the increasing nature that president Trump at the rallies or other people uh, are linking um, Asian American people, Chinese in particular uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the new phrase going around is the Kung flu 
uh, that a lot of people think is funny, but it was really weird at the evangelical mega church in Phoenix, where he held his rally, I believe yesterday or two days ago, uh, people started chanting it and like waiting till he said it. And when he said it, they just kind of went nuts. Uh, And what stuck in my head was Pastor Lee yesterday uh, talking about how painful that is. Uh, and, and I want to just have a conversation about the importance of language and uh, particularly language that can be seen as racist to the people that it's about uh, and how we as Christians particularly need to be really careful. Um, and it, even if you don't think it's a big idea, thinking about what it how it affects other people. So let me just start with that rally. Did you did you see that? And what was your reaction as the people were literally chanting Kung Flu? Yeah, it was really yeah. disheartening. Man, I found it really discouraging. I think the the phrase is awful. I think, um, yep. I mean, our guest yesterday, but many other people that I, I respect and follow online, Daniel Yang is one of them. We've had him on the show a couple of times. These are just really patient, thoughtful men and women of God who are not in any way known for any kind of sensationalism or responding too quickly or too loudly on like These are, these are, patient, long-suffering, diligent pastors and leaders. And when I see enough of them say, yeah, it's racist. It's not just hurtful. Like, that's that's what I want to make the distinction. You, you know, you mentioned yeah. that, that the phrase could be hurtful to the people that it's about. I'm like, I think it's way worse than that. I think we need to call it what it is, whether or not it's about us at all. And I think that's part of where this gets tricky for some people because they're like, it doesn't, they don't feel the sting of it themselves. So it's easier for them to dismiss. Uh, but yeah, it, to me, it's much worse than just simply in poor taste or mm-hmm. not becoming of the office. While both of those things are true, I think it's I think it's a good deal worse. So Pastor Lee, Andrew Lee, who we had on yesterday, you can find that at our podcast if you want to go back and listen to his words about this, because we asked him directly about how does that make him feel and the people of his church feel? But I, I believe it was also Daniel Yang, who you were just re- referencing, um, who said uh, that the increasing nature of people tying COVID-19, uh, using it kind of tying it to um, Chinese Americans and kind of using it against them, it has affected the way people have treated them. Uh, that it's it, like you said, it's been much more than just words. That's been, um, that there's been this, um, yeah, like this anger towards them, which is really sad and it's really disheartening. And then when you start seeing many of our Christ following brothers and sisters being ones who are taking part in it, it, it's really something I almost said, it's just really sad, but it's something that should make us angry and we need to speak out against. Yeah. That's what I was going to say again. It's way worse than just really sad and really disheartening. That's, part of it. It should be part of it, but I think it just, it needs to be more than that. Yep. Let me ask this, and this is, I'm just kind of teeing you up a little bit here, but what about the person out there who's like, come on, it's just a joke. People think it's a, it's a funny thing. Uh, we don't mean it to be hurtful. It's, you know, it's, it, come on, it's a funny name. How would you respond if somebody, particularly a Christ follower, said that to you? I mean, that's kind of psychology and counseling one-on-one. If, if someone is telling you that your words harm them, you don't get to decide whether or not that's true. Like hmm. that's, that is so much of what I think has perpetuated the boys will be boys type of locker room talk, which hmm. I'm sure 
plenty of men thought that's eh, not that big a deal. Right. And we now hopefully more of us now are smarter to understand now that's that's harmful. That's a type of violence to, to people, to, to people that are made in the image and likeness of God. And just, just simply because we feel like maybe somebody else is, you know, taking something too seriously or or even that. I mean, it's a it's an age old excuse. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, that's yeah. fine. I mean, I guess that's a plus. Um, but now that you know that it's harmful, your behavior needs to change. So to simply say my motive initially wasn't uh, ill, it didn't have any any ill motivation behind that. Like, what that's um, that's only one part of the equation, though. So now that you know that it is actually harmful, um, course correct. Yeah. So some of the background, it says in recent days, President Trump has more than once used the term uh, Kung Flu, a play on words with the form of a Chinese martial arts called Kung Fu. Uh, He used the term in a campaign rally in Oklahoma over the weekend and again on Tuesday night before the evangelical megachurch. Many of his administrators, I'm reading from this article, many in his administration had previously expressed outrage over an allegation that the White House used the term. Uh, Kellyanne Conway said she considered Kung flu to be highly offensive. Um, she spoke with reporters Wednesday and tried to defend President Trump's comments, uh, saying that he just wanted everybody to know that the virus originated in China. Um, she added that polls suggest that the number of Americans who view China as an adversary has nearly tripled. Uh, and so uh, Ron Sider, the founder of Evangelicals for Social Action, Uh, He warned that use of terms like Kung flu only stoke racial tensions at a time when attacks and hate crimes against Asians in the U.S. have shot up during the pandemic. Uh, Sider said several contributors in a new book uh, said lament and condemn the frequent stoking of recent racist sentiment. Um, And so we could go on and on here. Uh, I think. What we want everybody out there, especially the Christ follower, to think about is, um, you know what, even I almost just gave people an out like it is a big deal. Our words are a big deal. The Bible makes that very clear uh, and that we need to think about not just how does it make somebody else feel, but but what is our witness as we're doing? What's it say about our own soul when we can degrade another person uh, like that? And so, you know, I'd close this segment by saying if there's a person out there feeling a little bit convicted by this, by going, you know what I do, I am pretty sloppy in what I'm willing to say about other people. Yeah. Uh, what do they do? What is their next step? What would you counsel them to do? Uh, stop. <laughs> Be more restrained. I mean, again, listen, you're, you're, you're talking to someone who is notorious for having things yeah. flat of his mouth that he wishes he could take back. Like I'll, I'll be the first to own that. Like that is, that is not a new struggle for Ian Simpkins. But when you talk about James, the half brother of Jesus, who says, oh, it's like a rudder. It steers the whole thing or it'll, it'll burn an entire forest down. It's like the, it's like that bit in a horse's mouth or Paul who in Ephesians says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That word unwholesome is the where the word SIPO, where we get our word for septic. It's like rotten. Mm. It's rotting. It's, like you consume that, and that makes you sick. Like for someone to even say, "Ah, it's just a little bit racist." Like, all right, well, let me just put a little bit of feces in your soda. Then, like, let's do <laughs> just a little bit. It's just a little. Like, we need to be better than, that, especially as Christ followers. So to simply say, "Hey, I, I actually don't get how it's offensive," but enough people that I care about have said that it is, and for that reason, I'm going to stop. Even though I don't cognitively yes. totally get it yet, 
on their behalf because that's what it means to be a Christ follower, to look to the interests of others because you're an image bearer and you're telling me that's problematic. I'm going to stop and then I'm going to learn a little bit more about why. Yep. And it's a good opportunity. Also, the whole Jesus teaching about the plank in your own eye to look in the mirror and go, all right, it's easy for me to say this about other people saying these kinds of things. But what? where am I sloppy? Yeah, like you right. said, with the words I use, uh, where do I need to be more careful? So we thought it was important to talk about this because I do feel like this is a phrase uh, that as the campaign goes, seems to be picking up some momentum. Yeah. Uh, and some of this phraseology and other things, I think we as the church need to stand up against. Well, coming up next, something we touched on yesterday uh, but what did Jesus actually likely look like? And does it actually matter? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and the podcast, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend, tell the world about it. Uh, it does help us. And uh, we are grateful for those of you who do podcast, uh, but go, go tell somebody about it. That would be great. Uh, any big plans tonight, man? Thursday night, beautiful out. Any, any big plans today? I'm going to take my boys for a walk the way that I do every night. That's you got it's a nightly walk. Okay. Okay. A night a nightly walk. That is right. Yes, sir. My uh my wife is gonna have a social distance bonfire with some of her mama friends. So oh, I'm fun. on I'm on dad duty. Good for you. Good for you. My kids, and all that. Yeah. My kids today from their aunt got in the mail a a contraption that goes around the outside of the netting for the uh, trampoline and just rains down water. It's the coolest thing. <laughs> I've I've seen that. Yeah, those yeah, are awesome. You- Oh, That's yeah. all. That is all they've been doing today. And uh, one other thing, as I look at your Facebook posts, I enjoyed you. You reposted a bunch of your pictures from India. In what year did you go? That was 2006. I could not recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm already a pretty thin dude. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> 50 pounds lighter. Yeah, I not get it. 2006. I don't, you know, you were what in your teens at that time, but well, and I, yeah, that's nice of you to say. I also <laughs> did not pay attention to like the don't drink the water recommendations. I got uh, really, really sick a couple of times. Yeah. The, but I stared at the first picture going, that can't be him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were like buzzed head. Yeah. Uh, but it was a cool picture. So I, something we touched on yesterday and we said we need to dive into. So we're going to do that right now. Uh, is uh, basically what did Jesus look like and does it matter? So at Religion News, Emily McFarlane Miller put out an article just today that says how Jesus became white and why it's time to cancel that. And uh, it's it's an interesting article that kind of goes back through history, especially of the very well-known famous painting called Head of Christ, painted by Warner Salmon, Mm-hmm. Uh, that if you've seen it, you can see it at our Facebook page in this article. Everybody knows this picture. Yeah, right. Uh, it's probably been in your church, even in your home, uh, this picture. Um, not, not in my home. Not in your home? No, sir. I don't think this one was in ours, but I think it was certainly in our church, I believe, growing up. Um, so it it goes into kind of how did Jesus, the proje- the um, the representation of him become white? Uh 
here, let me set you up this way. Let me start you this way to the person out there that's going, wasn't Jesus white? How would you respond to that? I think most of our audience knows that Jesus wasn't actually white. I think most I think there's people who just haven't thought about it. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely true. I'll just say it bluntly. Uh, he's Middle Eastern, so <laughs> not white. That is true. Uh, <laughs> and so we also have an article from History uh, that says, what did Jesus actually look like? So what they did is uh, they kind of, as you just said, looked at what did most uh, Middle Eastern Jewish men of that time uh, look like. Uh, and so it went throughout history of how he was portrayed but then they landed on Jesus being uh, five foot five ish um, and uh, kind of a, more of a matty hair. Uh, and it said average height, uh, dark brown, uh, brown eyes, dark brown to black hair and olive brown skin. Uh, that's what they landed on. And so here's my question for you, Ian. Uh, why does this matter or does this matter at all the way Jesus is portrayed presently and throughout history? Uh, is this a big deal in your opinion? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really big deal for a number of reasons. Uh, we were actually just my last class for seminary. One of the weekly assignments was a different painting or depiction of Jesus throughout history. Oh, that's we interesting. We had this really wonderful conversation with the rest of our classmates and our professor was brilliant. Like it was just a very, very, it, it really did challenge some uh, preconceived notion. I mean, again, these are seminary students. So like we are thinking about this stuff a yeah, lot yeah. and it still challenged stuff. And I was like, Oh, I don't know why this depiction makes me feel this way or why I'd never thought of this. But one of the things that I think is really easy for white people to miss is that when you grow up, having never seen a depiction of Jesus that in any way represents your own experience, that does something to you as well. So for you and I, Brian, there are more white depictions of Jesus than we could even find. Like that's, that's the, that in a lot of ways is the pervasive, although not the universal depiction of Jesus. And I think that that, that does a number of things, not only for the white experience, like, well, they, yeah, of course he's, of course he's white. The very fact that we've, you know, plenty of people have never even thought of it is yeah. part of the problem. Um, but on the flip side, though, for someone to have never really seen themselves, I guess, in that way, in the person of Jesus and that, I mean, again, a Middle Eastern Jewish man, in the first century probably looked a very particular way. that a lot of us wouldn't fit into. And that doesn't at all mean that Jesus is any less Savior, King, and Lord in our lives and that we're not, you know, still included in the body of Christ and all that stuff. But depictions matter, art matters, representation matters. And uh, I think it's, I think it's a really important conversation. Yeah. So let me ask it this way then at the religion news article that we were just referencing, it goes on to talk about how, um, you know, oftentimes in the African-American church, there'll be a depiction of a black Jesus in the white church, the white Jesus and go on. They go through a bunch of different ones, much like you just talked about with art in different ways. Do you think that our goal should be an accurate view of what Jesus probably actually looked like? Or is there some benefit in uh, us viewing Jesus? Maybe how we look, does that make it more relatable or um, or is that problematic? I mean, it really it depends on who's asking, right? Like. We, this is again, a ter- this is a terrible analogy, but I'm going to go for it anyway. <laughs> the death penalty. <laughs> there's, been, there's been crazes in Western American uh, diet habits that talks about like 
cutting all mm. calories, right? I'm going to no calories. I'm not going to have any calories. You're like, well, your body actually really needs calories. The problem is we as Americans on average tend to have a surplus. We have too many calories. The goal isn't no calories. It's a more appropriate. So like it depends on who's asking. If you're asking or if I'm asking like, oh, is that it's probably still good to have, you know, white Jesus bouncing around. Like, yeah, but there's there's that's already flooding the depictions throughout history of who and what Jesus looks like. Um, so for people right now, and again, you have guys like Sean King who are coming out calling white Jesus as a form of white supremacy. That I think mm-hmm. is a super interesting conversation. How we go about that, I think says a lot, but there is certainly the, I mean, the more that you delve into history, like for you and I, I think the depiction like Salman's depiction can feel kind of benign. You're like, yeah, it's inaccurate, but not harmful. Mm-hmm. You, can, you dive into the history of some of these depictions though. I don't know that some of the motivation wasn't violent or harmful. And just because you and I don't see it that way, doesn't necessarily mean that its origins are less than ideal and most certainly less than God honoring. That I think raises interesting, important questions. Could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? How would it be, um, and negative in the ways you're describing. Well, I mean, again, I would go and read the article, but I think yep. that often can be a form of oppression by keeping people from really seeing themselves in the narrative or in the character of a Messiah. Like that, I think, is mm. subtle. And maybe there's probably a whole lot more less than subtle ways. But mm-hmm. I, I think if we're really honest, there has been some dangerous actions from white Christians and Christians of all colors. I mean, to be fair, but white Christians in particular, where there were systemic ways to, to help continue and perpetuate the narrative that other people, other citizens are somehow less than. Mm. Um, and I think how we depict and understand and interact with, you know, the resurrected Jesus and the historical Jesus, I think are, are all, they all need to be considered at the very least. Yeah. I think that is, uh, it's an interesting conversation that, I, I mean, like I said, I grew up going to church and I went to Wheaton College and I don't know that I ever gave it much thought. Uh, and so articles like this, I think, are really helpful. For some of you, it's going to be an uncomfortable article. And I think that's a little bit of the point. Uh, yeah, and right. so find it at our Facebook page. It's from the Religion News uh, at the Common Good Radio Show on our Facebook page. And we would love to know your thoughts uh, about this Topic. Well, coming up next, I want to read a tweet uh, that I uh, kind of struck me this morning. Uh, it's from a pastor to pastors, so I want to get your take on it because also the response to it uh, was also surprising for me. So that's coming up next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey, friends! Welcome back to the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a good Thursday. And uh, glad that you are joining us today. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook. It's there you can find uh, articles we've discussed, interviews we've done. Ian tends to even post uh, a lot of things that we don't even talk about on the show. Uh, But we would love for you to go to our Facebook page. Uh, You can do that at the Common Good Radio Show. Find the same stuff at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, you can find old shows at 1160hope.com, or if you're a podcaster, and aren't most of us podcasters these days, uh, yesterday, Ian gave us his list of like his 500 favorite podcasts, which was wonderful. (laughs) Too many, way too many. (laughs) Uh, You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That does help. Uh, So I want to talk about a tweet 
that I saw. One of the first ones I saw when I woke up this morning going through Twitter and then the uh, the replies have been a little bit crazy. And so I want to talk about that with Ian here in a second. But before we do that, Ian is going to talk about one of our partners, that being Thrivent. That is right. A couple of things. So Thrivent.com is where you should head right now. It's a Fortune 500 non-for-profit. They've been around for 100 plus years. I should stop saying 100 plus and figure out the actual <laughs> years, get, get real specific. But for now... Yeah. A century plus, I've been a Thrivent member for like eight years. Super grateful for them and their heartbeat. Check out Action Teams, by the way. They're awesome. Also, though, Thrivent.com slash careers. If you are even remotely interested in a career change, that's a great place to go. Even if you don't have any background or experience in money, you just like helping people come alongside people. Plus, they're doing webinars and readings for kids and resources. That's actually how I got to know them in the first place was they just kind of came alongside our church and helped in some really remarkable ways, helped us put on a marriage conference and helped us, you know, help some people prepare for retirement and plan for college. They're just remarkable. So many resources and workshops, and uh, we're super grateful for them. And that's one of the interesting things about Thrivent, right? You mentioned it. You don't need to have an MBA or have gone to business school. Right. They'll train you. They'll, right. they'll get you. That's so right. if, if you're looking for a job change or interested, definitely reach out to them. Well, uh, I woke up, as I said, this morning going through Twitter and uh, woke up way too early because of the new puppy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, a pastor by the name of Eric Lindine. I'm not familiar with him, but he's a church planter in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And uh, he tweeted this. He said, man, I am so tired, so tired of taking hits as a pastor in the middle of a pandemic. So tired of people leaving, tired of anxiety and worry. I've been in vocational ministry for 19 years. This has been by far the hardest year of my ministry life. Uh, and uh, before I talk about the replies, I'm curious, Ian, put on, I know we never take off our pastor hat, but if you did take it off, put your pastor hat back on. Okay. And uh, can you relate to what he's saying? Or are you like, no, that's not really my experience right now. Oh, yes, I can relate for sure. Why so? How so? Without getting too open or personal if you don't want to, but how How so? Um. I just think it's been objectively hard. I think there's a lot of, I mean, I feel like people got really tired of the word unprecedented, but that felt like at least for a while, that word really fit. There's just so much that we just didn't know how to navigate. We didn't know how to strategize around. You know, I think, I think community does a wonderful job thinking on its toes and having to come up with contingency plans. I, I think we've done really, really well, but even just like at a personal level, you know, I, I know an, a number of friends who are experiencing the worst marital tension they've ever mm. had because they're like at home together all the time. And so as a pastor, that really breaks my heart. I know a bunch of people who lost their jobs or had their had their yeah. hours cut and that's creating all sorts of stress and that sorts, you know, starts to snowball. So I, I think that there's it feels like a lot of my my tiredness and anxiety has a whole lot more to do about what people in our church are experiencing personally, yeah. you know, like we've, we've been pretty vocal about how grateful we are for a chance to do our jobs remotely. Like that's super rare. Yes. Not a lot of people have that opportunity, yes. but I, it does feel like in a lot of ways, I mean, my, my community, my church is grieving in so many different ways. And, and I, for better, or for worse, I like wear a lot of that. And that, that weighs on me just thinking about the different, you know, battles and struggles that so many people in our church are facing. So it, it has been really hard in that regard. But in a, in another way, though, I think it's it's strangely maybe brought some of us a lot closer because we've had to yeah. 
get really honest about what it is we're facing. But yeah, it's it's been hard for sure. What, what about you guys? Yeah, I could re- relate a lot to what he said. The one thing that I, I didn't necessarily relate to is he said, so tired of people leaving. Uh, I don't feel like we've had many people leave or more than that. I don't feel like I would know if they've left at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> Some right, of them. Right. Uh, so I'm, I am curious how, how that's played out for this guy, but the uh, anxiety and the worry, uh, the pandemic. Uh, yeah. It's, I think tired's a right word because uh, it's a little bit of that decision fatigue that we talked about in general yesterday. Uh, that one article where, uh, you're just needing to think on your toes, as you said, to things you haven't been trained to think about before or ways to think uh, that it's just uh, wearying. It, it makes you tired. And, and what was really interesting uh, is uh, the replies. I just was like, wow, I wonder what people are saying to this right mm-hmm. now. And uh, this thing's got 115 retweets, uh, 1,400 1, likes and just a ton of replies. The very first reply uh, the person told him to suck it up, buttercup. So we're going to be, go beyond that one. Oh, that's but, not the first one I see. Oh, it's not? It's the first one on my list here. No. But I could be wrong because I can't go through all the replies. But after that, basically all the replies I see are people going, totally get it. Totally how I feel. Let's talk. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ed Stetzer retweeted this before and was like, uh, you know, pastors, it's okay not to be okay. And uh, if you need to, a lot of like, uh, I would say from what I'm seeing, 95% of the replies are not just, hey, I'll pray for you, but also like, that's totally what I'm feeling too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's what I'm feeling. And I, and I found that strangely comforting for one, um, but also going, okay, this is kind of a big deal. And I, and I think you make a good point to go, it's not just pastors feeling this, we're that's all right. feeling this. That's right. And so what would you say to the person who's filled with anxiety right now, filled, feels overwhelmed, feels scared, or all these things this guy described? Uh, maybe they're not a pastor. Maybe they're a businessman and they're having it a business, whatever, whatever the profession or whatever it is. How would you counsel those people? What would be your words of encouragement or your next steps for them? Oh, man. I mean, first off, just be honest about it. You know, like we we're actually working on a, a series for the fall on mental health and realizing Are you really, yeah, there's, we're having a hard time even finding churches who have done a sermon series on mental health. Like it, I think in a lot of, a lot of circles, it's still kind of really stigmatized. So, and there's varying degrees. It's a spectrum, right? Like you don't, you don't have to be clinical to be struggling with some mental health. Like I had to learn that the hard way, even in ministry, you know, cause I grew up pretty blue collar. And so at the end of a Sunday, I felt exhausted, but didn't feel like I had permission to be exhausted because I didn't do any hard labor out in the summer yeah. sun. You know what I mean? So it was like, yeah. what am I tired from? And thank thank God I had wise mentors that were like, yeah, there's such thing as spiritual exhaustion and emotional exhaustion and mental exhaustion. You need to pay attention to those things as much as you do your bodily exhaustion. So I think one, just owning it, like get honest with yourself and then get honest with others. That's the first step, I think, to healing from it because when we, you know, cause shame is such a weirdly powerful motivator that if we feel like oh, I'm a Christian, so I shouldn't be feeling these things. So shame tells me, well, I can't trust this with to anybody else. So I'll just kind of keep stuffing it down. You know, Richard Rohr talks about pain. That's not transformed is transmitted. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. eventually going to come out somewhere. And if we don't actually destigmatize it and work at it and share it with, you know, I'm not saying like you're, you know, broadcast it to everybody, but trusted right. people. That's an important part of it. There's really, really good books and 
Bible studies and there's even honestly, this is maybe embarrassing to admit. A lot of times I'll just Google uh, Bible verses when I'm feeling blank. And there's all sorts of websites or resources like oh, Bible verses when I'm feeling fearful, Bible verses when I'm feeling anxious. You'd be amazed how much the word of God actually speaks to some of these things in, in ways that maybe you've never looked at it before. So I, those aren't, not, again, obviously none of them will solve everything, but I think they're helpful places to start. Yeah. And we bag on, on social media a lot, but this is one of those instances where social media is good because this guy saying, I feel alone and discouraged. And all these replies are like, not just, I feel that way, but I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. Right. Let's talk. Right. And I think that's a good reminder of if you feel alone right now, um, there are probably other people feeling the same way. That's and right. like he, this guy's finding out and to connect to those people and to make those connections. I know that could be hard to do, um, but not being in it alone, I think, is important. So I thought this was I found this very, in a strange way, encouraging to see a lot of people coming around this guy and kind of say, no, I'm feeling the same way, not just for pastors, uh, but for all people. So we'll have that tweet up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, uh, in the right turn of all right turns, we're going to end the show next the way we always do, a little bit of interweb insanity. That's next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and that music can only mean one thing. It is the end of our show, Interweb Insanity, where we read stories provided to us by our executive producer, Keith Conrad, stories he has found on the internet. And uh, as we like to say, they usually make us laugh. Sometimes they make us cringe, but uh, we're all going to read them for the first time together. So, uh, Ian, you do not have to go very far for this first one. Do I have to go first? I like making you go first. All right. That's Weird to say. Illinois. (laughs) Escaped bull lassoed after wandering onto Illinois Highway. The photo is super weird. Drivers on an Illinois highway had to dodge an unusual traffic hazard when an escaped bull wandered onto the interstate and was eventually lassoed. It's funny that you mentioned uh, my trip to India earlier, Brian, because this was a regular occurrence. Was it really? Bulls and goats just standing right in the middle of the road for as long as they wanted. Yeah. The Columbia Police Department said officers responded to Interstate 255 on Wednesday after drivers reported the large animal wandering into the roadway. At least one driver captured video of the bull watching vehicles pass from the side of the highway. The police department said officers were able to guide the bull away from the highway, and it was then lassoed by its owner, and that's no bull. Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you care about. Oh, next one, relatively local again in Wisconsin. Wisconsin man receives postcard mailed 16 years earlier. I think we do a lot of these. This is a common thing by our post office here. (laughs) A uh, Wisconsin man said he received a postcard from his parents earlier this month and was shocked to learn it had been sent 16 years earlier. Tom Ramsden of Beloit said a postcard bearing the image of Mount Rushmore arrived at his home this month with a message from his parents and a note attached to the card said it had been found in Green Bay on July 11th. Wow. Ramsden said a conversation with his mother revealed the card's vintage. Pre-COVID, they would take yearly trips, and I figured it was from a year ago. But when I asked about it, she said it was from 2004. I was like, wow, where has this thing been? It's rather weathered. And someone took care to tape the edges and send it to me. Ramsden said the note offered no additional details other than where and when it was found. His mother, Jocelyn uh, Ramsden, said she remembered sending the postcard during their 2004 trip she took with her husband. It still has the original stamp on it, and I don't know where it's gone. 
but it turned up. When you control the mail, you control information. Uh, just a correction, the card was found on June 11th. We haven't had July 11th yet. So. Did I say July 11th? Sure Ooh, it was, sure it was found in the future. Ooh. <laughs> Marty! Okay, so California, uh, mountain lion removed from crawl space under California home. Yikes. A wow. mountain lion spotted wandering at California City for four days was captured Thursday morning when it took shelter in a home's crawl space. Monrovia Police and California Department of Fish and Wildlife agents said the, the mountain lion, which had been spotted in various locations around the city over the course of four days, was spotted hiding in the crawl space. I wonder if this lion was spotted. The cougar <laughs> left the home Wednesday night and was seen wandering the neighborhood before returning to the crawl space. The animal was shot with a, twink, a tranquilizer dart and removed from under the home shortly before 8 a.m. He's on him. He's going to try and bite my calf muscle. That is terrifying. Not huh? going into my crawl space for a while now. I don't think you have to worry about mountain lions in this part of the country. It's true. Wyoming, Yellowstone tourist learns mama bears don't mess around. Hmm. Visitors strolling along a path with a name like Fairy Falls Trail wouldn't be unreasonable to envision a relaxing, enchanting walk surrounded by picturesque scenery. For one tourist in Yellowstone National Park this week, however, her saunter was anything but idyllic. Per a National Park Service release cited by the East Idaho News, the 37-year-old woman from Columbia, Missouri, was hiking solo Monday morning along a trail near Old Faithful Geyser when she stumbled across two grizzly bears at very close range. The female bear knocked down the woman. Well, that is close range. Knocked down the woman yeah, who tried to use bear spray to fend off her attacker. From the injured person statements, this appears to be a typical case of a mother grizzly bear protecting her offspring. Because this bear was displaying natural protective behavior for its cub, no, cub, no action will be taken against the bear. The woman, who declined medical attention, came away from the bear encounter with minor facial injuries and a scratched thigh. She alerted others to the attack, and park officials closed multiple trails in the area to give the bears time to move elsewhere. Hey, boo-boo, let's see what we got in this picnic basket. Last but not least, Australia... Lottery winners' screams of joy prompt wellness check from neighbors. Huh. Australian man said he screamed so loud upon learning he had won a lottery jackpot of over $500,000 that his neighbors showed up to make sure he wasn't injured. The, oh boy, what's that city? Lutwich. Lutwich, I'd go with that. That's Lutwich, Queensland man told the lot officials he had been talking to a friend about the winning numbers from Saturday's lotto, $20 million super draw when he noticed... The number sounded a little bit familiar. <laughs> That's funny. The man said he called his son to check the numbers on his ticket to see if they matched the winning digits. He said to me, no way. I think you've won Division One." I. I don't know what that means. The man <laughs> recalled of his conversation with his son. I don't believe him. So I checked. I checked all of the numbers again. And sure enough, he was right. The winner said the news made him so excited. He screamed with joy. I was screaming so much that the neighbors came over because they thought something was wrong. The man was one of 27 players to score a $508,959.20 Division One jackpot from the drum. Son, I think I can safely say, I would scream too. I think I would scream very loudly. I believe you. <laughs> well, we're glad that you joined us today. Hope it's, uh, you have a great rest of your Thursday. And you join us tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.